Well, I don't really know. Uh, I'm supposed to use this mic all the... It's not for your benefit, but for the recording system. Well, good evening to begin with. And, well, thank you very much for coming. Um, what's going to transpire tonight is, uh, is the conversation between these three gentlemen sitting at this table and uh, they're presumably going to chat for a while with each other and they have mics or the amplifiers etc etc so going you are going to hear the exchanges rather well I think well the room is small and just uh, uh, subsequently subsequently if you would like to ask questions or perhaps volunteer some opinions upon what you've heard well, you are perfectly welcome. Well, now, I was, uh, I was told to, uh, well, first of all, I have to introduce myself. I'm Joseph Brodsky, and I'm the member of Penn Board. <laughs> well, uh, well, whatever it is, whatever it does it stand for. Well, um, three gentlemen sitting at this table. It's, it's a peculiar thing for me to do this thing, to introduce them. In fact, as, as far as I well know, I'm the youngest. Well, uh, because um, uh, because uh, well, for all my well, whatever it is. Uh, uh, um, let's start. Well, with Richard Howard. Well, Richard, you were born 1929, yeah. Well, uh, Derek was born 19. <laughs> yeah, 19. <laughs> well, well, I was saying when 30. Well, and unless you are 38, yeah. Well, huh? Yeah, and uh, as for my humble self, I was born in 1940, so I'm the youngest, you see, and apart from anything else. And well, who would guess it? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, and, uh, uh, and apart from anything else, uh, uh, the English, as you probably realize, uh, 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 is not my mother tongue. Well, and yet, and yet, and yet, well, the purpose of this uh, uh, gathering well, uh, unless you shouldn't look at me because, well, you're going to hear something rather. Well, it's simply um, um, to, figure, to figure it out or perhaps to discuss why is that uh, we do like your work so much. Yeah, indeed we do. Yeah, and, uh, well, youngest though I am, I think I've heard about, no, 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 I'm just ser getting serious. Well. <laughs> Well, I think I, um, I came across uh, the notion of the existence of this sport in Australia well, uh, earlier than uh, perhaps, uh, uh, if not most of you, than some of you, uh, many, many moons ago in the, uh, in the previous incarnation in the old country that is of mine, in Russia, I, uh, I was engaged at one point in translating an anthology of contemporary Australian poetry. The year was, I suppose, something like 1968, 69, maybe 70. Well, and uh, I've, been, I've been, well, uh, to begin with, to begin with, I was quite uh, astonished. Well, I've read some English poetry by that time, 30 though I was, 32 or 31 or 29. Well, and, uh, um, well, I, I, I sort of had a fair idea of what the poetry in English, more or less, the, the pinnacles of it is. And I was uh, uh, quite stunned by uh, finding, in, indeed, the entirely new continent. Uh, 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 well, um, 
I, I'm, not, I'm not intending to give you a, a lecture on Australian poetry. I'm not qualified. But I remember, I remember that well from all the introductions and all the materials that, uh, materials that I had at my disposal at that time. Unfortunately, I wasn't given uh, to translate. Well, because well, uh, it was not up to me to make a choice of what I'm going to translate. Well, so uh, in, for that anthology, I, um, uh, I remember that, uh, uh, roughly speaking, the Australian poetry came into, so to speak, into its own with the man whose name was, I think, Kenneth Lesser. Yeah. Am I right? Yeah. Well, and then, uh, and then well, uh, this is when the 20th century, so to speak, in Australian poetry has started. And then it began to, uh, to, uh, to catch up with the uh, uh, metropolia in kind of in, gi in gigantic strides. Well, uh, well, they had all sorts of things. Well, uh, well, uh, there was an, an, a man, I think, John Manifold. Yeah. Oh, I'm not. Uh, well, then uh, there was a, a woman whom you know, <coughs> perhaps not exactly for her poetic. He died this year, John. Huh? He died this year, John. John Manifold. Yeah. Then there was a rather magnificent woman. I thought Mary Gilmore. Well, then, well, the greatest discovery of mine was then uh, Judith Wright. Well, actually, well, Judith Wright, I had some kind of a, 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 a special stake in merely because I was told by somebody, well, uh, I live very much, still do in many ways, well, by hearsay in what, who is good and who is bad. And I was told that, well, in his last years, Robert Frost was pushing for, her, uh, for edition, of, for publishing of Judith Wright's uh, poems in this country, in this country, that is in the United States. Well, which came to pass subsequently, but much later than Frost was intending, and well, and it went sort of quite unnoticed, in, uh, as far as I know. Well, and she's a, uh, she's quite a, a unique uh, uh, poet. Well, uh, well, I think well, uh, well, obviously, well, I'm not qualified again to talk about her. She's a well, she's alive and she's fairly old. She's deaf, I think. Yeah, she's very. Deaf. She's living somewhere in the what, whatever we call in the old, but <coughs> she's living outside of Canberra. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, and um, and then there were other. Uh, well, uh, women were quite marvelous there. Well, uh, there was a terrific woman, Rosemary Dobson. Yeah. Well, and well, basically, basically the peculiar thing. Well, uh, I remember my sensation of uh, well in surveying that uh, poetry, surveying, surveying. I guess it was. Well, um, uh, that well, um, I felt a very peculiar sense that well, um, basically. Um, basically, all those people, all these poets, well, in one way or another, I'm not trying to say that, well, the reality indeed does determine one's conscience, and uh, especially that of, a, of the poet, but to a certain extent it does, not so much the reality as, as geography does. Well, and in a sense, in a sense, they were trying to, um, uh, uh, each, each one of them, because they were coming from the tradition of the English language, of English literature, of English poetry, they were trying to possess the land, so to speak, to sort of uh, to claim it. But in fact, in fact, uh, in, almost in spite of themselves, they find themselves in poetry, uh, to say the least, on the paper, uh, being possessed by the land. Because the phenomenon that they're deal, uh, dealing with is far greater and far more inscrutable than, um, well, um, uh, than I don't really know what, than anything, in fact. Well, well it's a uh, totally new, Realm and um, well and I, I remember uh, and this is I remember one thing which uh, one main difficulty uh, about trying to read that and translating that well merely because each time I was bumping into well time and again time and again into very strange words for which 
my well Miller dictionary, uh, English Russian dictionary, simply had no well, in, that was a substantial dictionary, a real brick. Well, and uh, uh, well, it had no words. Well, uh, uh, I, well, I, I, well, I, I don't want to try to uh, even to pronounce them. The Biloki or something like this. Yeah, Biloki. Yeah, yeah, Biloki. Yeah, well, well, guess what's that? Well, at any rate, I don't know till <laughs> this day. <laughs> well, <coughs> I'll fit you right on that. Yeah, yeah, and uh, and so forth and so forth and so forth. So uh, well, uh, it uh, uh, it became apparent to me that uh, there is a huge realm in poetry, which is um, uh, which is of, of which I wasn't aware. But what really stunned me, perhaps more than that, when I came to this country, is that well, the population of this country, the, the readership, even the wide and advanced readership, isn't aware either of that. Yeah. Well, and that's uh, that's to me even well. That's to me uh, is less explicable, because I think if I were writing, uh, if I were a, a poet or a writer of the English language, what I would try to do first, I would try to kind of survey the whole damn thing from Tucson to I don't really know to Singapore, Kuala Lumpur, yeah. That is all the dictions possible, and then so that I don't sound parochial, yeah. Well, but uh, well, but that wasn't the case, and um, well, and I uh, that was I and. So therefore, I think it was about five or six years ago, Mark Strand and I, we were talking about, and he said, have you heard about Les Mary? And I remember the name. Well, although I couldn't, re uh, 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 well, I didn't have any kind of clear-cut notions. Of, well, quite a lot of water ran off the mill and under the bridge or whatever it is, since uh, between uh, that period and when I first uh, spotted that name. Well, and then he said, well, well, here's this book, Vernacular Republic, uh, I think it was. Well, Ethnic Radio, I think, was, and well, I don't really remember which was first. Well, never mind, uh, Liz, don't correct me. And then there was uh, that Vernacular Republic, and I began to read it. Well, the main problem was, of course, uh, as I was reading that, was uh, the, again, the uh, purely linguistic content. Some words I simply didn't know, and, uh, and well, by that time, I, uh, my sense of English etymology was more or less somewhat better, and well, I began to make sense out of this and kind of began to gloss over, well, uh, hoping that well, somehow the cumulative effect will uh, let me to, uh, uh, will render this, the function of this word clear, and well, in, in many ways it did. But mainly what, what really stunned me is the, uh, stunned me, well, I'm using this stunned for the third time, well, uh, is the, indeed, the linguistic content, the linguistic, uh, not exactly richness, the intensity of the language. Um, in the work of this bold man, well, and uh, uh, well, and I can take well, I can uh, sort of use this about uh, uh, speak uh, or refer to in this fashion because I'm myself not exactly well, and and uh, uh, it's uh, well, for one thing, I found it tremendously interesting. Well, well, uh, well, a, I found it an, uh, interesting in purely novelistic, informative sense, yeah. But what uh, uh, what I really like is almost Marlovian vigor. Of the diction, yeah. Well, and it's, it's remarkable, yeah. And well, for that I'm uh, awfully well. Well, I felt instantly grateful, etc. Et so when it came to uh, well, and I was trying for quite some time to twist the arm uh, of uh, the publisher, well, uh, who was publishing my work, etc., etc. Well, uh, to bring uh, the collection of uh, Les Marys about. Well, that uh, that never came to ha uh, to pass. Subsequently, uh, Perse Books, well, Mike Brasilia, I think, and his uh, well. Wisdom, well, picked it up and uh, has done it. But and yet, I find it quite scandalous that till this day, we have only one collection, very slim, 
vernacular republic in English in this country. Uh, in fact, quite scandalous that we know so little about Australian poetry. Well, now, now uh, so this is a, a little bit about Les Mary. Well, the people who are going to talk about uh, to him are uh, Richard Howard. Well, well, you know that uh, standard opening that, well, uh, there is no need to introduce Richard Howard, etc., etc. So, well, well, let me try. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, well, uh, there is no way. Well, I can do the adequate job. So, uh, well, let me uh, do it slightly. Well, slightly idiosyncratic thing. Well, um, it's again, it's again. Well, uh, it's again has to do something with the memory, with flash, uh, with flashbacks, and that sort of thing. I remember again. Well, that I don't remember in which country, in that country or in this country, that I've read it, uh, his works for the first time. But I remember one poem, and I'm pretty sure it, it had to do something with um, uh, Marlene Dietrich. And I remember I found uh, these two words, well, this uh, epithet and the noun. I think uh, acrobatic eyes. I thought, Jesus Christ. <laughs> it's, pretty, <yeah. laughs> it's pretty good, don't you think? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, and... Uh, um, well, uh, no, 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 no. Uh, uh, the point is, the point is that well, this sort of a conjunction, acrobatic eyes. Well, obviously, obviously, after uh, well, if you read some Auden, etc., etc., well, it comes natural. But well, at that point, at that point, I was not exactly the avid reader of Auden. What really struck me when uh, when I was reading all this, well, with uh, terrific intelligence, I would say, I would say, uh, well. I almost thought, well, Richard, I had a notion of, well, uh, A, I didn't know you, A, B, I have read very little. I thought that I'm reading some Catholic poet for some reason, yeah? Because of all these Renaissance things, etc., 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 etc. Well, and, uh, uh, well, uh, later on, uh, I came to know uh, quite a lot of things about Mr. Howard, of course. Well, that is, well, that is, well, first that he was born indeed in 1929, yeah? <laughs> yeah, well, uh, of all places in Cleveland, Ohio, um, uh, uh, I think uh, he was educated in Colombia and in Sorbonne. Well, in order to make his living, he, I think, well, mostly translates, teaches and translates. Uh, I think the latter he does with a greater pleasure than the former. And, uh, and uh, indeed, for, uh, for the latter, he was, uh, uh, he's quite. Well, he has an enormous reputation as a translator. Well, it, well, especially in the country from whose language he translates. I think he, well, there was some uh, decoration uh, well, that he has been awarded by the French government for, for those services, which is not a small thing. French are not so friendly, basically. <laughs> well, and, um, well, uh, he, he also won some Pulitzer, uh, Pulitzer uh, I don't really remember when, when, well, he's, among other things, he's a translator of the thing we, uh, of the author whom I hold almost, not exactly sacred song, but who is very close to the skin, uh, to my skin, well, of uh, Suran, well, two volumes, uh, Temptation to Exist, and what's the Six volumes. There you are. Yeah. Well, all right, I, I knew that I'm going to botch this introduction. Well, and, um, uh, well, of Baudelaire, of course, and, well, there was that book award. Well, I even had some kind of query uh, with that translation for all that book award, etc., etc., because as far as I could understand, well, uh, 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 as, as far as I could see, yeah, you've done him more or less in an equivalent of a free verse, yeah? No? 
it sounds like three words. There are not that many rhymes, no? Well, sorry about that. Well, no? <laughs> what was it? Blank words. Uh, blank words. I'm sorry about that. Uh, blank words. But well, then well, uh, well, my yeah, not that many. Well, my initial my initial uh, my initial uh, uh, response to that kind of a practice would be to reproach the man and to presumably accuse him uh, of uh, not being uh, able to handle uh, the uh, the formal words, but in, not in the case of uh, Mr. Howard. Well, I think he's superb in that. Well, and therefore, I think when he renders a Baudelaire the way he does, that is blank verse, I think he knows what he's doing. And it's for our benefit, right? Well, now, about uh, well, Richard, well, if you, well, please don't feel cross with what I'm saying. Well, I'm simply uh, trying, well, my best. But, uh, well, um, this is one thing. Well, that is Richard Howard. Now comes Derek Walters. Well, and to Derek, I, uh, uh, I'm going to pay um, a slightly peculiar tribute. Not a peculiar tribute, well, I'm going to use his own words. Many years ago, already I can use this expression, many years ago, and, well, I feel quite lucky, but I can. Well, uh, uh, that was in the West Indies, I think it was in the island of St. Thomas. Well, um, Mr. Walton was introducing me, I was to give a reading to uh, a bunch of the students in the local college. And he started by saying that, well, well, listen that, well, well, here's this man, he's my friend, etc., etc. And then he used this sentence, this phrase, well, he said, well, uh, he said, but apart from uh, the friendship, there is a reality of his work. Well, well, so well, I just well, uh, well, let me turn the tables, and I, I, I would say that there is a reality uh, of his work, the reality which, uh, uh, to me, is well, quite absorbing. Well, uh, and uh, the reality on which, well, I simply, uh, 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 in so many ways, do depend. Uh, well, uh, and it's not, uh, and it's not well. Uh, you know that well, Mr. Walker is the poet. Walker was born. In, uh, in Saint Lucia, and uh, well, basically he's uh, the citizen, technically speaking. Well, not technically speaking. I'm sorry about that. Well, he's a citizen of Saint uh, of Saint Lucia, which is a republic. Yeah. What is it called? What do you think it is? <laughs> it's an island. Yeah. Well. Uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And uh, on his passport, on his passport. Well, the passport uh, well, try, tends to imitate. No, not imitate. It's sort of a replica of this. Uh, of the coat of arms of the British Empire, because you, uh, Saint Lucia used to be the part, well, still is, well, nominally, presumably. And uh, instead of two rampant clients, well, there are two tropical birds, yeah, <laughs> which is uh, which I find absolutely endearing, yeah. Well, and also the number, because Mr. Walker, I think, is one of the f uh, uh, first citizens of that island. Well, uh, and therefore, his num the number of his passport contains, I think, only about five or, or six digits, like a, a telephone number in some provincial directory. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and um, but he made it. Uh, he made it simply out about whatever this for whatever reasons, which I never understood. Well, that is because I uh, well they're basically impractical. He wa he was technically speaking uh, the subject of the British Empire. Now he became the subject of that island. Yeah, yeah. Well, but it's uh, well. But I'm not talking about his integrity and, uh, and so forth. I'm uh, I, I'm simply trying to say that well, the reality and what I like about his work is uh, well not exactly what people like him for. 
people do like him presumably for the most uh, the most immediate uh, uh, response to his work is so, sort of visceral, well, to the psychedelic colors almost of the Caribbean, of all the tropical realm, etc., etc. Well, I simply, uh, I simply uh, like it uh, for uh, for for terrific, well, exa exactly for the same reasons. Well, as I well uh, as I mentioned, well, uh, the case of Mary and the case uh, and the case of Howard, uh, for for, uh, for its language. Uh, uh, for, for terrific linguistic density, for uh, um, well, they're marvelous. Uh, well, I, I'm not talking even about imagery. I'm not talking about even imagery. It's the poetry of uh, uh, terrific profundity, ter terrific profundity, and of terrific sense of history. Yeah, yeah. Which is well, which is coming from that part of the well, whatever it is um, realm, is almost quite unexpected. Well, I don't want to uh, quote myself, well, because uh, uh, because I've written something about well an introduction uh, to this man. But I think, well, it's uh, all these people do come from uh, uh, from various parts, various territories of the English language. That is uh, from uh, what we sort of reg may regard well outskirts, and in terms of outskirts, in terms of the original place of the places of origin. I think Ohio, Cleveland, Ohio, well, is not that uh, uh, well uh, spiritually or mentally or whatever intellectually superior to Saint Lucia or perhaps well whatever it is uh, some uh, uh, outback in Australia. Well, well, they start more or less in the same thing. Well, in the same well from the same zero, and yet and no 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 I'm not trying to. Uh, well, but you know what Francis Carcot said? Well, there was that French writer. He said, well, uh, there's that book from Montmartre, the Latin Quarter. He said, the poet dies in, uh, is born in the provinces, but he dies in Paris. Well, well, I don't really know where these people, and I don't want to ponder it, are going to um, uh, um, die. But well, well, halfway, well, halfway through their lives, well, uh, that uh, halfway through the poet's life, it should be upgraded in, in this uh, part of the century. A poet may be born in Provence, but uh, at a certain point he finds himself in New York. Yeah? 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 All right. Well, now they're going to chat. And you remember that you are invited to take a part in this. How would it be? In whatever capacity you'd like to take a part. I take it we're to talk into these things? You would like it. I'd better do a quick voice level test. Can you, is, is that all right? If we just sort of wave them around? And you, it's not doing anything for them. It's just for us and you. Can you? Can, ah, yes. Okay. Um, I, I want to begin by saying that the, the poems uh, that we're here to talk about, and to some extent the poet, uh, are not quite so recondite as all that. They've been with us for a little bit. We've been able to read Australian poetry if, we're, if we ex exhibit a great deal of goodwill uh, for the last 25 years. And uh, we started, many of us, uh, with uh, A.D. Hope uh, and uh, with 
a couple of novelists, and then um, there have been some anthologies, and there have been some <coughs> visits, and I remember when I went for Penn to Sydney to one of those Penn Congresses, like the one that's going to be here, um, I met more Australian poets, and at that time, uh, was I think the first time that I had heard of Mr. Murray, although Mark Strand had been there already and had brought back one of these books. And uh, from then on, I, I think I followed Joseph exactly. One was completely taken over by this writing, and uh, I, I think we are starting with that assumption that the, 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 the work is uh, not only attractive, but uh, uh, overpowering its attractiveness, and I want to uh, begin by lodging some complaints. Um, first of all, his uh, work is uh, of a specificity uh, that for a merely provincial writer like myself, I wouldn't dare be specific in the way that Murray is specific. He uses a language, a series, one might call it a grid or a system of references, and uh, a series of what to me seem like assumptions about his readers that make the poems surprising almost every other line. Uh, there is the question of vocabulary. Uh, Mr. Brodsky's difficulties with it uh, might have merely seemed like an extension of difficulties that one hopes that he was having with English in general. Uh, for, for a provincial from the Midwest, like myself, the, the difficulties were other. Um, they were uh, the difficulties of real resentment. I could not understand how a poet whom I clearly admired so much and who had so much to tell me uh, about the kind of uh, life that I myself either wanted to live or didn't want to live could write, uh, could throw so many obstacles in my way. I rushed to the dictionary. There is no Australian dictionary. Uh, I therefore, my first remark uh, is what we need is an annotated edition of Murray. We need a, about uh, 150 words uh, defined. We need place names, persons, and historical references uh, as we have them for any uh, work of the first order. Uh, and I, I urge his publisher and him to, um, to make it <coughs> easier for his American opposite numbers, especially the older ones, to get at what he's doing. Now, I mentioned this to him in a kind of um, tentative and uh, cobwebby way when I walked in, and he said that he wanted to answer this irrefutable charge. So I. Well, firstly, <coughs> I suppose I have a terrible arrogance about language on two bases. Um, my great-grandfather's first cousin, Sir James Murray, wrote the Oxford English Dictionary. Um, almost to learn. And um, <laughs> invented some of it, I believe. But um, um, the other thing is that uh, you must, I think, um, be empowered to, um, to use all of your knowledge, all of your vocabulary. We have to understand the words of London and New York. We have to understand the, the references that come from uh, the other literatures that pour into Australia. And damn it all, I said to myself, I'm not going to be lobotomized. I'm going to use all of my, all, all, 
all I've got. There is a good Australian dictionary now. It's not existed for long, but it's called the uh, Macquarie Dictionary, published in uh, Sydney, a large green-covered volume. And, uh, and I, I put a lot of words in there myself. <laughs> but um, it's probably an essential for any Austlit um, uh, studies. That um, you see, you see, the words are not only the words. The, as you know, there's uh, there's a whole world of reference behind them. The word bullocky we mentioned earlier on. My father was one. Um, it means a person who, in the old days, used to ha have a team of, uh, of bullocks and, and draw timber out of the forest. Um, it was, you know, sort of hard slogging work. Uh, it's a very much beloved Australian word. But you get this kind of difficulty. Um, there was a chap translating me into Dutch who uh, said, how the hell am I going to translate a word like paddock? Now, paddock is a very uh, beloved Australian word. It's very characteristic. It means anything from 100 to, um, to several thousand acres of, uh, of dry grass. Uh, the, the nearest word he could get to it in Dutch was kuve, which is a, about an acre of green grass between the apartment blocks. You know? <laughs> <coughs> Uh, he finally fell back on the Afrikaans language and called it uh, Velt, uh, which is, is, is close. Yeah. There are hundreds and hundreds of such words. There are thousands of them. There are words that you wouldn't think that are strange, uh, like station. Uh, station means a ranch. Yeah. And um, we've just got to be able to use that vocabulary if, we can, if we're going to have a literature. Well, we've got to be able to have a Right, we've been putting up with your vocabulary for a hundred years. Which poem is that, Richard? The coup d'etat. Oh, well, the coup d'etat was a joke. I didn't reprint it. Um, it was um, the friend of mine called Mark O'Connor who um, wanted, who was passionately interested in spelling reform in English, and that poem was written to show him how impossible it was. But I didn't reprint it afterwards. It, uh, it, it deliberately proposed a rather ugly uh, uh, phonetic spelling of English. And I uh, thought after a while, no, 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 that might leave it. Leave it alone, let it die. But you were yourself aware of something. Oh, yeah. Yeah, sure. That was that was the send up of the whole idea. Um, I think it's a, it's a matter of scale, of course, but I think historically and almost comically. You have to remember that the British Empire saw, no matter what size the territory was, 
that anything outside the empire was mentally the same scale to the British. In other words, St. Lucia was really no bigger than Australia, and nor was New Zealand any, you know, larger than Canada, which of course it's immensely smaller there. Um, I think all of that, without going into that old story about history and language and so on, and working that over, because I think as poets here, you know, you don't want to get academic. Um, on the other hand, I think Richard's question, as valid as it is, and it is a very good question, um, is the same kind of question that uh, one I would have to answer as an ex probably still a colonial, I'm probably now an American colonial. The thing about the West Indies is they just keep changing empires, right? <laughs> um, so that the larger question, I think, without trying to answer for Les, is really a question of an innate inferiority complex, possibly, historically, and linguistically, which can turn into an aggressiveness of saying, this is how we talk, to hell with it. That's one. But deeper than that, I think there's a question that um, any poet, uh, as Joseph describes it, outside what is called the empire or the metropolis, um, first of all, has this temptation to be, you know, national, to be not national, but to be, you know, to, 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 be, to be particular about his origins and his environment. But I think deeper than that, there's a question of whether the language on the outside of the empire has citizenship, really, and whether that citizenship is anything that is desired by the poet, which I certainly think Les or any Australian would say, to hell with that, you know? But on the other hand, it is the English language, um, whatever happens to it, on however much it is altered. And I think what is being explored here is not so much uh, a confident provinciality, an aggressive provinciality, or chauvinism, uh, as the question itself that is being examined. The question of responsibility, I think, is examined by Murray. I mean, there are words in Hardy, um, perhaps not as much as Les, but I mean, there are words in Hardy that we don't know, that we're glad that we have, like Coombe, words like that. There's a certain roundness and richness to them. Heaney uses a lot of words in Irish that uh, you're talking to him, are common words in Irish, but are funny words to us. Uh, so I think underneath it, it's, I think um, valid and, and good as Richard's question is, I think for us on the other side, I mean, we are talking, if Les will allow me to call him temporarily an ex-colonial, yeah. we are talking about a question of um, exploring that uh, horror of inferiority or that idea of being charged with being over aggressive in provinciality and I think it's really the seam of the exploration that matters more than the um, than the glossary in a sense let me just finish off one point here what we have with Murray is we have within an, the English language we have what is not a dialect but another language really. In, in my case, what I have is a several dialects. I have a French dialect as well as an English dialect happening. And you get very uh, divided, actually, in yourself about saying, um, and I think the worst one is to say, look, I have an international platform. 
I think that is a bad one. To say, you know, I'm addressing the universe, right? Um, at these points, you have to quote yourself when you get desperate. But I mean, I, I was thinking or wrote it down somewhere that perhaps a poet doesn't look further than 20 miles around his immediate position. That's about the width, I think, of his actual experience, geographical. Anything else becomes a subject, I think. And wherever the, the fact that um, Murray's poetry is so, so terrifically located in Australia uh, does a hell of a lot, not only for that part of Australia, but for Australia itself. So I don't want to sound like some sort of, you know, diplomat trying to placate other sides, both sides. I'm, I'm just saying that it is a question that may not be as tough a one for Richard in the American language as it is for Les in the um, Australian language, if you want to call it that. And I think it's really a matter of exploring the responsibility of that language rather than being sort of belligerent about it. Yeah. <coughs> <coughs> There's a lot of truth in that. Uh, Yeats says in one of his greatest poems, my country is Kiltartan Cross. My country is uh, Kiltartan's poor. Uh, I think we're making Richard look bad. Yeah, I yeah. I, I, no, no, I, I think I better clarify that. I'm not saying that Richard's question it's not wrong. is wrong. Yeah. Not at all. I mean, it's a question. I, I'd like to repeat that it is the same problem, and perhaps more deeply than Les, that in my work I yeah. face, because... That whole uh, yeah. Yeah, weight of the, of, the, of the language, of the historical language on you. So mm. it's not, not yeah. sounding. Yeah, Ingr English has got to be regarded now as polycentric and having uh, equal validity of a, of a great many uh, dialects and sociolects, and there's no other way to, you know, to come at it. Um, some, have, some have triumphed and, uh, and, and reached sort of currency. Um, but. Um, where I, where I come from is an area about 70 miles long by 50 miles wide, and and I'm deeply involved there, yeah? and uh, from that I spin out to um, to that wide sort of um, um, country, that wide really island of Australia, um, and beyond. I mean, some of my poems aren't located at all; they're just in uh, in space, you know. They're, uh, but all I all I demand is that. Um, and it's not really an aggressive demand, is that um, I can take all my language with me and, uh, and hope that the polycentric theory covers it. I once wrote a, um, an essay uh, about what I called Athenian and Boeotian art, uh, which was the thesis of which was that uh, there are two very ancient um, strands in, in Western culture, one of which is urban and based um, and, and has its origins in Athens, taken over by Rome and carried on through uh, through history to modern times where one or two centers in uh, in the world are regarded as um, uh, the valid centers of culture and the rest are province. I absolutely reject the word province. Um, the other strand is what I call Boeotian and uh, my, one of my favorite poets is Hesiod, the earliest of the Boeotian poets, uh, for whom the capital of the world is where you are. And, uh, uh, the world is absolutely polycentric. You uh, you start from where you are, and uh, each is productive. I think in uh, in literature in uh, in the succeeding 2,500 years. 
<laughs> so you're of the ocean because you can't help it, and, uh, and, and, and so am I. But can you separate that question of, of um, not only of recognition, but how can you separate power from language? How can you separate the fact that the empire, the center of the empire, is the official speech, even in its poetry, and that the only way that that speech of, the, even if you don't want to use the word provinces or the outlying, wherever it is, yeah. um, surrounding the metropolis, is um, not the imperial language or even the imperial tone. How can one separate the imposition of that language outside the metropolis? Uh, how can that be justified without political authority? I mean, we all have to speak. <coughs> yeah. We all eventually have to speak English. We all eventually have to know American. Yeah. But we don't have to learn Australian. Mm. You certainly don't have to learn West Indian. How do you separate? Well, I think you do. The I think you, of the I think you do have to learn West Indian, and you're why. Well, um, I don't think that's strong enough. I don't think no, no. <laughs> Pretty bloody strong, Derek. No, I mean. no, no, no. <laughs> no, I think there's a bigger question than that. I think that you may, you might have. I mean, there's, that's a question of eccentricity in a sense. Of saying here's an here's, here's an isolated sample of what could happen out yeah. there, as opposed to ignoring um, whatever goes with that, because there are larger questions than, than just the individual writer. I mean, there are questions of what is Australia? There's, no larger, There's no larger question than the individual writer. They've got to learn West Indian because of you. They've got to learn uh, Irish, uh, Irish English because of Gates and, uh, and because of Joyce. Otherwise, they're starting to ossify, and they're turning into a kind of Mandarin Chinese. Yeah? But, isn't that still? I mean, isn't that a little? Isn't that basically egotistical, though, to, to think yeah. of ourselves? Yeah. Well, <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I, I mean, one of the things, what what we, I mean, one of the things that's very true about what you're saying is that what makes England live is Shakespeare. Otherwise, it really, really does. I mean, <coughs> um, the same with what makes the Greek archipelago live is Homer and the Greek yeah. playwrights and so on. So all of that granted. But still, you can't deny the fact that I can't do anything about what happens in Brixton. You can't do anything about what happens to somebody who's called whatever the, the jeering name for an Australian is in London. Yeah. Um, you know, and that doesn't mean that a taxi driver is going to read Les Murray and understand, you know, oh, the basic inferiority of the Australian. You know? There's nothing complex about our inferiority. No, no, I'm saying <laughs> that. It's the authority of, uh, of a person who puts the language on the map. That's yeah. why you guys get locked up. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 
Does it not seem to you sometimes that you have more in common with other Australian poets and writers than with other poets in the rest of the English? Um, no, not necessarily, no. And I don't even uh, worry about um, the distance of centuries. I got more in common with Hesiod than I've got with a lot of modern poets. Because he came, you know, he, he was um, the son of a share farmer on a small farm in Greece. Yeah. Uh, he had a, he had uh, problems about the ownership of cattle. He wrote about the uh, the legends of the gods. Uh, he wrote about the seasons. I just published a book about the Australian seasons. It's in prose. I apologise, but uh, yeah. uh, this work has to be done. Um, you do find an identification. It's a comfort and it's a strength uh, with your um, uh, with your country country folk who you know support you, but uh, if if the people at home in my district didn't read me, I wouldn't be any good. Yeah. Uh, the rest is the rest is all the rest is all um, extra. Is that so? Yeah, it's extra. Yeah, yeah, it's all extra. Yeah, I'm 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 killed up and spoiled. Yeah. Yeah, we've always had a good readership of poetry in Australia. It's always been rather large. It dipped badly in the 40s and 50s. It came up again slowly in the 60s and has recovered and uh, gone on. The great difference I discovered uh, only this year and a bit last year, I was doing the Oxford Book of Australian Verse. Most poetry before 1920 was published in newspapers. Uh, it then changed over with modernism to, uh, to being published in magazines. Um, in 1963-64, it began to be published in newspapers again. It's, it, it now is. And um, one of the reviews I'm proudest of was in Truck and Bus magazine. It was read by truck drivers. Yeah. Um, I, you can get romantic about that. You can, uh, you can overvalue that. But uh, it, it's essential. If you, if you weren't reaching them, you'd only be, you'd only be writing in Mandarin Chinese. Uh, there's another strain that's the right word, or strand in your work, strand, uh, that I think should be offered up here or at least identified, and that is the, the, the strand of what uh, for us uh, accumulates as something like uh, Welsh, Scottish, Irish, uh, the Gale. Mm. And uh, mm. I think uh, some of the poems are particularly powerful because, it, it, to me at least, uh, again, uh, I invoke Ohio, uh, it seemed possible to be Gaelic in Australia. And I was astounded. I had always resented <coughs> the Gales for just producing so much good literature out of such a small geography. And uh, then it seemed to me that they had colonized. Mm -hmm. And here you were in the things like the Lament or the Elegy for Angus MacDonald, yeah. uh, which is just an astounding poem. Uh, moving over hundreds and indeed thousands of years and also um, thousands and thousands of miles and establishing a kind of Gaelic culture within the Australian language that you write. Yeah. And that seemed to me very complex and elaborate and must be very enriching for you. Well, Angus MacDonald was uh, a fascinating fellow. He was um, the last um, sworn Chenechi of the island of North East. Uh, he came from there to Australia when he was 20. 
he um, was a remembrancer, a person who uh, remembered um, ancient history and lore and song and so forth. Um, he worked as a floor walker in uh, David Jones, the chap who wears a um, carnation in his buttonhole and, uh, and, and, and arrests uh, shop, shoplifters. Um, he had this, this enormous um, culture carried in his head. Late in his life, he began to write it down. It, uh, it filled a quarter of a million uh, words. That's not counting the verse, you know. There were hundreds of songs as well recorded from nowhere else. And um, I went to his funeral and uh, was badly conducted his funeral and uh, I felt that he deserved a, uh, a traditional lament. And I thought, it'll be strange to Angus and he'll probably, he'd grin about it if he, if he believed in, uh, in the afterlife. He'd grin about it because it's written in the, uh, the language which, which he thought was strictly a passing phenomenon because the world will eventually speak Gaelic again. Um, and uh, what I used in that poem were all the tropes of a, uh, uh, of a traditional Celtic lament, you know, the, 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 the chest of polished boards and all the whole thing. Um, I think Angus might have been pleased with it. But my family um, <coughs> were south-eastern uh, borderers of Scotland who came to Australia about 1848. They weren't Gaelic people at all, really, but uh, they married into Highlanders when they got there. And uh, when I grew up, there was fiddle music, there were the Gaelic... The Gaelic language was just over the horizon. It had just died out. Uh, it was spoken around that, uh, those valleys for about 100 years. And um, we're part of... I mean, I did shift in Australia. I shifted the word Anglo-Saxon to Anglo-Celtic. They used to speak in Anglo-Celtic. They now tend to say anglo They used to say Anglo-Saxon. They now tend to say Anglo-Celtic because that's the reality of it. The British Empire was, uh, um, I suppose, an English empire in which the, on which the Celts were parasitic, if you like. To return to my question of notes, mm. here is a here is a stanza from that poem, where the poet addresses the remembrancer, teacher of my heart. You'll not approve my making this in the conqueror's language, though Calgacus used their Latin finely. Now I believe that Mr. Murray is having me on. Is that a Gaelic word for Tacitus? No. Who is Calgacus? He was a chap. Um because you quote then Tacitus. Yeah. And I. Yeah, Tacitus was counting. I uh, was quoting a uh, um, ah. a, a Pictish war chief called Calgacus who said that they uh, they make a uh, desert and call it peace. Yeah. Well, it's yeah. the most yeah. famous expression we have from Tacitus, and one that most people uh, would know. Yeah. But well, I he pinched it. He pinched it from one of our. Well, I want to know <laughs> that, and I want it to be. S I want a footnote at the bottom of yeah. that page. Nothing. We conquered Rome twice. Yeah. 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 Trouble is, we went home after. You know, we we sacked the place and went home. The Romans had a habit of staying. But, uh, <laughs> can, can would would anyone else here like to hear Mr. Murray read a whole poem through? Yeah. yeah. Huh? Could could you do that? This particular one or another? Uh, one that you'd like to read. All right. <laughs> it would be best if it was from a book which they could run out and buy. Therefore, the vernacular. That's a thought, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <coughs> well, the book opened at this one, so I'll read it. I used to live in Wales at one time, which is a bit germane to what we're saying. The poem is called Kiss of the Whip. In Cardiff, off St Mary Street, there in the pawn shops you could get a magazine called Kiss of the Whip. I used to pretend I'd had poems in it. Kiss of the Whip, I never saw it. I might, might have encountered familiar skills having been raised in the stock whip culture. Grandfather could dock a black snake's head. Stanley would crack the snake for preference. 
leaped from his horse, grabbed, whirl and jolt. The popped head hummed from his one-shot slingshot. The whips themselves were black, fine-braided, arm-coiling beasts that could suddenly flourish and cut a cannibal strip from a bull. Millisecond returns. Or idly behead an ant on the track. My father did that. A knot in the lash would kill a rabbit. There were decencies. Good dogs and children were flogged with the same lash doubled back. A horsehair plat on the tip for a cracker sharpened the note. For 10 or 12,000 years, this was the sonic barrier's one human fracture. Whip cracking is that. Thonged lightning making the leanest thunder. When black snakes go to hell, they are affixed by their fangs to carved whip handles and fed on nothing but noonday heat, sweat and flowing rumps and language. They writhe up dust storms for revenge and send them roaring where creature comforts got with a touch of the lash. And that is a temple yard that'll bear more cleansing. Before, through droughts and barracks, those lax, quiet, speaking, sudden fellas emerge where skill unbraids from death and mastering in St Mary Street, which I suppose in a sneaky way answers um, Derek's point about power because I figure that somewhere there has to be a place where skill and uh, where skill is, un is disentangled from power and mastery. Um, the poem really started from two things. It started from a joke in uh, Cardiff. They said, uh, if you go down by there, boy, uh, off, off St. Mary Street a bit, you can, you, you can buy yourself a magazine called Kiss of the Whip. <laughs> And um, I thought it was such a marvellous title that uh, I didn't have to see it, you know. I, um, I figured I knew what it was about. And um, the other thing was that I knew that uh, the, the sound barrier we talked about in the 50s when aircraft began to fly through it uh, had been broken for a long time by, uh, by the end of a whiplash because the, the crack of a whip is, the, uh, is, is sonic boom. And these two facts together build a poem. And the, form, the, the formal structure of the poem is just simply braiding, you know, in, wi in winding ideas together. My uh, grandfather used to make whips out of leather. Yeah. I want to um, change this a little bit less, Richard, you want to go on? Oh, no. the, um, I just have a note here, and reading your <coughs> poems, I thought sometimes, are you sometimes, or do you think the Australian poet um, this is a very dumb question, but let me say it. Uh, is undertakes the scale of Australia in the way that, say, poets, certain novelists and certain, even American poets, um, undertook the, even in a concentrated way, even in the lyric, undertook the idea of an epic Australia, an Australian epic. <coughs> I don't mean in the usual conventional sense of somebody tried to do it. I mean, yeah. oh, I've done it in the conventional sense. Do you yourself feel um, that the scale of Australia is a temptation into becoming epical simply because of the size of the country? Mm -hmm. In the same way that a lot of poets have to resist this idea, both politically, genealogically, or whatever. I don't know why they resist it. Why do they resist it? Yeah. No, I mean, I'm, I'm asking you if they undertake it. I mean, yeah. they're they <coughs> uh, Well, I have. I have. I read a verse novel called The Boys Who Stole the Funeral, which is really about stealing an old man's body out of an undertaker's freezer and taking it up the country. Because this boy thought that uh, the, uh, the old man who uh, wanted to be buried up the country should have his wish. Yes, but that sense, yeah, but see, that's different. I mean, I'm, I'm not talking about, I mean, what you do in your poetry is clear. I mean, you, mm. take, a, you take a concentrated area. Mm. of Australia, and yeah. all of Australia is in there, mm. right? That's different. I mean, yeah. I'm talking about the idea of, in other words, I put a note here, like, um, 
there may be a temptation in Australia, perhaps, of being Texan. In other words, you yeah. know, make it big. Do you yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. And so you have a no. kind of Australian poetry that may be tempted to yeah. undertake the, the state of Australia. The Stephen Vincent Benet sort of. Um, yeah. Yeah. yeah, it would be defeated by Australia because Americans think that Australia is the uh, another frontier beyond their own. It's not. It's not. Not like that at all. It's another planet. Um, Europe was a... Uh, um, America, I, I get the impression, correct me, was uh, a repeat in some ways of uh, Northern Europe. Uh, good soils, familiar seasons, all that. Australia was different. It drove them mad. It, it started as a gulag. We don't have Thanksgiving because it started as a jail. Uh, and, um, <laughs> and um, uh, everything else has been, uh, been pure gain since. Yeah? <laughs> uh, the slaves there were white. Yeah? The Indians were black. Um, <coughs> the, uh, all the rules are different. Um, about two-thirds of Australia probably never be settled, uh, not, not very thickly, because there's no water. There's not enough water. You can't rely on it. The great seasons there are drought and the return of water. Um, there's no high mountains carrying snow down into the, uh, into the nearby deserts. I was amazed. I went to Tucson one time, and uh, I thought, here's a people who are not afraid of their deserts, yeah? um, because they had that water up on the, on, the, on the high Sierras and so on, which would flow down into the desert. Um, it's only very recently Australians stopped being frightened of their deserts. And it's a continent in which two-thirds of it at least are given over to mystic poetry. That's all you can do with it. That and mining, you know, and the mining will pass, but the mystic poetry will be around. To the Aborigines, Australia was a, was a, a great network of songs, um, which you sang at particular places, you know. And uh, there's a story I was telling some friends the other night a uh, chap was travelling with an Aboriginal friend of his in a Land Rover and he said, where are we? And then there's no, no features on the landscape, you know, it's, uh, it's sort of, you can find the absolute map in Australia, one with no features. <laughs> and <laughs> and um, <coughs> he was travelling through this piece of country and he said, where are we? And the man began to chant a song and uh, he stopped at a certain line and he said, we're there. We're at that line in the song. It's not, it's not like here. <laughs> it's like here. <coughs> Sorry, it's like here on the edges. Somebody once described Australia like a wheel which is driven through, the, uh, through, muddy, uh, through, through, through a mud puddle. And the people live in the mud around the, uh, around the rim. Yeah. Australians like to live in the, on the crust. The inland is serious. Quality lesson work which I um, I was rereading the other day or reading, I just got it. Um, Christopher Logue's you know Logue's uh, This is a book that everybody should get. This is uh, Christopher Logue's how do I pronounce it, Patrick Clear. Patrick Clear. Books of the Iliad that uh, published by King Penguin and it's just a marvelous book. Um, and I was reading Les at the same time and thought that um, there's a sort of a vehemence, a lyrical vehemence um, in the best sense in Murray that is just staggering. Um, 
And instead of asking you a sort of Johnny Carson question, like, where did you get it? I mean, <laughs> well, uh, do you think that part of that um, has to do, in a way, with width, in the sense, in a Homeric sense, of, with width, gain to the size of Australia? And also, whether isn't, there isn't, like, and I think most um, poets who are considered to be outside the language, a kind of holy anger about English, language in a sense. There is a, there is a bit. Um, and there's also the, uh, the maddening fact that there's no wars in Australia. You know, um, <laughs> you know it's very hard to find uh, violence to write about. <laughs> um, serious question. There's two strands of European literature. One comes off Homer and is about violence and war and is aristocratic. One comes off uh, Hesiod and is about peace and there are, there's a cycle of the seasons. Can peace be a, uh, a subject of, uh, of art? Okay. Uh, there's no bigger question, I don't think you know. In one answer that you gave to the question about how to write about war if you haven't got one, uh, comes to the point again, another strand or strain or Murray that I want to identify for you. Um, it's a more intimate one. Uh, and it's, it's a poem that um, uh, was called to my attention by Miss Sontag, uh, and she didn't know a lot of your work, but she said, she handed me the book, and she said, just look at this, and you'll, you'll see why I'm so enthusiastic about this poem. This is the poem called Immigrant Voyage, and I think it's the poem that if I were to ask you to read a poem rather than just yeah. saying, it's a poem about the the family of your wife, yeah, I believe, yeah. coming to Australia in 1950, the way many uh, displaced persons came to Australia in the last hundred years. But this is a sort of... You want me to read that? I would like you to yeah. read that poem out, because yeah. it's, it has so much to do with the world that we, in some other way, deal yeah. with. And this, is in, this is in common with you. Um, Immigrant voyage. My wife came out on the Goya in the mid-year of our century. In the fogs of that winter, many hundred ships were sounding. The DP camps were being washed to sea. The bomb sites and the ghettos were edging out to Israel, to Brazil, to Africa, America. The separating ships were bound away to the cities of refuge built for the age of progress. Hull down and pouring light, the tithe barns, the cathedrals were bearing the old casts away. Patton bombed out of babyhood, Hungarians become Swiss. The children heard their parents, Argentina or Australia? Less politics in Australia. Dark Germany, iron frost and the waiting many weeks. Then a small converted warship under the moon turning south. Way beyond the first star and beyond Cup Finisterre, the fishes and the birds did eat of their heave offerings. The Goya was a barracks, mess queue, spotlights, tower, crossing the middle sea. In the haunted blue light that burned night long in the sleeping decks, the tiered bunks were restless with cough, coughing, demons, territory. On the sea of sweat, the Red Sea, the flat heated, melted even dull deference of the injured. Nordics and Slavonics paid salt tax day and night being absolved of Europe. But by the gate of tears, the barracks was a village with accordions and dancing. Fräulein Kennedyman and Wittwurz approaching the southern stars. Those who said Europe had fallen to the proles and the many who said we are going for the children. 
the nouveau poor and the cheerful shirt sleeve proles, the children who thought no smoking signs meant men mustn't dress for dinner, those who had hopes and those who knew that they were giving up their lives were becoming the people who would say and sometimes urge in the English-speaking years, we came out on the Goya. At last, a low coastline, old horror of Dutch sail captains. Behind, behind it, still unknown, sunburnt farms, strange trees, family jokes, and all the classes of equality. <coughs> As it fell away northwards, there was one last week for songs, for dreaming at the rail, for beloved meaningless words. Standing into Port Phillip in the salt grey summer light, the village dissolved into strange shapes holding luggage. Now they, like the door Australians below them, were facing encounter with the foreign where all subtly fails. Those who, with effort, with concealment, with silence, had resisted the collapsed star death, who had clawed their families from it, those crippled by that gravity, were suddenly, shockingly, being loaded aboard lorries. They say another camp, one did not come for this. As all the refitted ships stood oiling in the bay, spectres, furious and feeble, accompanied the trucks through Melbourne. Resignation, understandings, the cheerful speed dispelled at length. That first day rolling north across the bright savannah, not yet people, but numbers. Population, forebears. Bonnegilla, Nelson's Bay, the dry land barbed wire ships from which some would never land. In these, as their parents learned the fresh start music, physicians nailing crates, attorneys cleaning trams, the children had one last ambiguous summer holiday. Ahead of them lay the deep end of the schoolyard, tribal testing, tribal soft drinks, and learning English fast, the wang-wang language. Ahead of them refinements, thumbs hooked down hard under belts to re repress gesticulation. Ahead of them epithets, wog, refo, como, nazi, things which can be forgotten but must first be told. And further ahead in the years of the coffee revolution and the small goods renaissance, the early funerals. The misemployed, the unadaptable, those marked by the abyss, friends who came on the Goya in the mid-year of our century. Um, <coughs> I'll tell you where that poem started. Um, it's often useful, I think, to know the germ of a poem. My father-in-law was out at um, Mascot Airport in Sydney in 1956. He's Hungarian, you see. He's got an Italian name. Our family's complicated. Um, and um, the people were coming off the plane straight from the streets of Budapest, the uh, people who had fought the uh, Hungarian uprising. And they were uh, tired and filthy and uh, staggering down the steps. And uh, there was a wonderful old man, because Sydney is divided by the Hungarians into, uh, by Hungarian Catholics into two parishes. The north side is known as Buddha and the south is called Pasht. Uh, and um, Father Foro was the, uh, the, the parish priest of, uh, of the southern half of Sydney. And he was out at the airport, and some one of the journalists who was there said, uh, God, they're a scruffy-looking lot, aren't they? And uh, old Father Forrow turned and quietly said, but they'll make wonderful ancestors. Um, <coughs> these days, we, uh, we've got a Canadian invention called multiculturalism. Um, everybody's supposed to be divided up into their uh, particular ethnic backgrounds. And it's a deadly trap in many ways. I mean, my family, grandfathers and great-grandfathers generation 
nearly destroyed themselves um, hungering for a Scotland they didn't know. You know, they drank a lot of this stuff to, uh, to get there. And um, uh, it's, it's fraught with dangers, but uh, it's the current fashion. Um, it's always intended, it, it's always directed against somebody, I think. You know, in Australia it's directed against what used to be called wasps, I'd like, I'd like to get rid of the word Anglo-Saxon. Um, but um, um, the, um, the law at the moment is that you, you're not supposed to borrow off Aboriginal uh, art, and I think it's a terrible thing. The Aborigines never, never from, um, um, resist your doing it. They, they, they're, they're pleased to see it done, but uh, I've got into a little bit of trouble on occasion for borrowing from Aboriginal sources. I have borrowed a number of ideas and um, and um, even verse structures from uh, from Aboriginal art. The great Aboriginal arts of Australia are dance and uh, a very uh, very long ramified uh, um, liturgical verses, which are chanted in accompaniment to the dance. And the other arts, I suppose, would be uh, body painting and ground painting, which are now being put onto canvas and uh, uh, becoming quite a hit around the world. Um, and um, I figure that we've just got to learn from that because we're not go we're not going back. You know, I don't. I'm not English. I don't. I can't go back. Um, we belong there. Some of the Aborigines are now saying the white man is beginning to learn. He's beginning to fit in a bit. Um, the, um, um, I just thought that this was one of the uh, one of the great resources of Australian art, and it just had to be borrowed from, and uh, and, and I did a bit of it. Um, and I was very pleased when I went up to the Aboriginal Affairs uh, Institute in uh, Institute of Aboriginal Studies, rather in Canberra, about six months ago, and there was a woman there who said, because uh, we used to have a thing, I should tell you about called the. The Jindy Warraback movement, which started in the 1930s and lasted up to the 1950s, which believed that um, um, every every uh, nation, every large place on earth, <coughs> gradually tended to, uh, to uh, move into the same form of culture, which had been there before. You know, it tended to repeat the form of culture there, and they were trying to uh, to learn from the Aborigines. They did it fairly badly because the uh, the good translation of uh, translations of Aboriginal traditional art came a little bit after their time, but um, uh, they were a start, I think. Um, and I was sort of uh, taking that up in another generation. And anyway, this lady said, "Ah, oh, there's a good book in this library." She said, um, uh, "The Jindi something or others." Um, yeah, the Jindi Warabak. She said, "Here it is." Uh, there's a poem in there I'm very fond of. And she pulled it out, and I smiled, and I said, I wrote it. <laughs> oh, I could do no wrong after that, you know. <laughs> because it threatens nobody. I mean, the, uh, the, the sacred verses and the, the less sacred verses are in, are in the original Aboriginal languages, and they're only magic when they're in the language. So um, borrowing from this is apparently fairly legitimate. But um, I think the great struggle in any, in any place any colonial places between the the tendency to be to be divided into uh, classifications, you know, you're white, you're uh, you're this, you're that, or uh, the Creole the Creole tendency, and I think the future has to be Creole in Australia. It comes in cycles, though. I think the Creole is about 15 years ahead of us at the moment. We're 
after we have separation, we're going to have the Creole idea again. Um, if you're going to stay in a place, it's, it's, it's going to be there. You know, I got a suspicion, and this, this is total heresy <coughs> in modern ideolo ideological terms. I got a suspicion that uh, things like blackness, whiteness, uh, poverty, and so on are all obsolete. I think they're they're stuff that we have we have handled a lot. You know, they're, we're over the top with them. <laughs> I thought that one would get I thought that one would get me a real good silence in New York. <laughs> but, uh, what do people think about that? invented one once called the common dish. Yeah. Uh, the European myth of the Middle Ages was the uh, the, the Holy Grail, which was a, a, a vessel attained only by a spiritual elite. Uh, I invented one which was the, uh, uh, the polar op opposite of it, which is the, uh, the common dish from which you must eat. And uh, uh, damnation only comes from refusing to eat. The it's, the, it's the dish of common experience, common suffering, common faith. It answers to Tocqueville's question about uh, about um, um, excellence and, and equality in the new world, but um, it'll take a while to take. I think. Tocqueville set the Americans a great uh, question about equality and excellence. Uh, I don't know the whole answer to it, but I think the common dish is in there. Um, it, it, it is an answer. It says that uh, you can have all the excellence you like, but you must eat from the common dish, you know, or you will die. Uh, you will be estranged. You will be alienated, to use the word. Yeah, I wrote it in sonnets. Um, the, um, I had this story I wanted to tell. I didn't know what it was. I wanted to tell it in order to find out what happened in it. And um, uh, it was about a, 
a boy stealing a, uh, an old man's body out of this uh, undertaker's freezer, taking it up the country in his car. And um, um, what he finally achieves is, um, after a lot of suffering, to, uh, in a sort of a delirium state when he's half starved and half mad in the bush, uh, chaps come to him, you know, chaps who are black and describe themselves as Irish and, and all this sort of thing. Fantag rather fantastical figures full of uh, kind of rivalry and cynicism. Um, and they show him this common vision. And um, um, when I was set out to write this thing, I, said, I, I thought I wanted to restore to poetry something which is lost in about the 18th century, which is uh, the, the narrative, the novel. And uh, we'd lost it to a novel first, then we'd lost it to movies, we'd lost it to television. And I thought, we can get that back. I'll, I'll just have a, have a go at getting it back. <coughs> so um, um, the, the problem was to find the formal um, um, structure, which really meant the timing device in which to tell the story. And I couldn't get anywhere. I started to write uh, down the page, you know, get to about line 30 and it'd die on me. And, um, then I saw a book by some New York writer, and I really, I wish to God I knew who it was, who had a book, who had a son, uh, two sonnets on the left page and two sonnets on the right page, and I thought, that's the organising principle. Uh, because that'll work like a, a take in a movie, that'll work like a, a short scene in a novel. Um, the, sonnet, the sonnet's 14 lines long, you can do anything inside 14 lines. You can have conversation, you can have uh, contemplation, you can have description. You can turn the sonnet inside out, you can put the middle of it, you can put the end of it in the middle. You can do everything in the world with the sonnet. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're pretty, they're pretty rough sonnets, I can tell you, some of them, yeah. Peter Porter doesn't reckon they're all sonnets by any means. Anyway, I was about halfway through this book and um, um, a mate of mine who's deeply learned, he said to me, oh, you mean like Yevgeny Onyegin? And I said, oh, he didn't, did he? He didn't. <laughs> so I had a look at Yevgeny Onyegin and I thought, no, it's all right. He was using the same sonnet form in, in each of the... Uh, and, uh, and I thought, uh, yeah, I'm off the hook. Um, I'm not the first one to do it, but I'm, I'm one and a half. You know. <coughs> so I wrote this thing and uh, it moves along quite with a, quite a good clip as a, uh, as a story. And uh, tell the, the boys who stole the funeral. Um, Les. I think because there are other writers here. What, as an Australian, you know, working in the English language and starting off as a poet, what were the technical challenges you found yourself confronted with in terms of not sounding like anybody else, or you know, or well, not that's not bad in itself, but I mean, of, of I'm working your way through um, what you may have considered to be very strong, you know, English influences or um, <coughs> one of the, um, well, I, let's just say the word delightful because that's what it is. The delightful um, aspects, I think, of, for me, of your work is that it has, it takes on the same formidable challenge that, say, P.J. Kavanaugh took on. Which is after Yeats, what you know, mm, yeah. um, and I, what he appears to have done is not to have ignored Yeats, but just not to have chosen to go down that track yeah. and stayed very tightly.
to himself. Yeah. And that is very, um, you that know, I think he's a very under, underrated and yeah. unknown poet. I find that um, tough. I find that kind of um, thing tough and admirable. Uh, but just out of, you know, normal functioning curiosity, what were the, um, what kind of a hard time did you have trying to work through to yeah. your own thing? We were, I had the benefit of being poorly educated in English first. Um, because I took no notice of it much when I was at school. They used to say, um, you won't do the poetry question, so we won't teach it. Um, and... Um, I, of course, there was no Australian poetry taught uh, anywhere outside the universities of Toulouse and Leningrad in those days. And um, uh, so there was an awful lot I didn't know and therefore didn't have to fight. But um, when you first come to poetry, or at least a, a fairly conventional-minded uh, person like me, uh, you have to master that socialect in which poetry is written, you know, the, uh, the, the sort of Mandarin language. And uh, I thought that's what I had to do first. I did it fairly poorly, and I didn't realise the mistakes I was making. <laughs> and um, then after a while, I started to think, I can put into this the language I grew up speaking. And I uh, started trying to do it, and I uh, just started to expand it. And uh, then after a while, I got a, got sort of more confident in, in how to do that. But you must have had some example of your problems, a heroic example of doing that. Did you have anyone at all? Not, not one single figure. Not one single thing. Because the thing I, ma I majored in at, at university was German rather than English. And uh, that's, a that's a literature that had to uh, find itself fairly late. And um, Luther's Bible came along, wonderful book. Then the, the Thirty Years' War happened, Blue German Literature to Pieces. Uh, it disappeared, except for one novel, Simply Sissimus. It disappeared till the, uh, till the late 18th century with Lessing. And they had to invent their their literature out of their folk um, their, their their folk ballads uh, in a hurry towards the end of the 18th century. And uh, I think that's my model more than any English one. These are sort of like school questions. Did the ballad, did the idea of the ballad, have anything? Yeah, it does a bit. You can't escape it in Australia. It's still alive. It's not good. <coughs> it sort of ossified about 50 years ago and it, it still goes on being written but uh, it means that people are conscious of poetry uh, it means that uh, there's a sort of a, a poor forming school which will sometimes start people reading real poetry and there's a, there's a kind of a style in which um, some people will set down their experiences and uh, that's really people's poetry and it's there uh, and occasionally it gets good you know, more often in the song than in the, the poem it was good in the 19th century occasionally, and uh, it was really the invention of a, of a convict called um, uh, Frank the Poet McNamara, um, who uh, learned it, who combined it together out of three sources. He put it together out of Burns and Swift and, uh, and Irish poetry, Irish language, traditional uh, poetry. Yeah. Well, yes, I suppose it's uh, sort of a bit of a British Columbia because I've just been in Canada. Uh, it's forest. It's um, uh, fairly. It's fairly good country. I mean, most Australian soils are, are poor. Uh, Australian soils go is not bad. It's forested. Uh, another anal 
analogy I think, I suspect, I don't know for sure, is the, uh, uh, the Allegheny Mountains over here. Because um, really what the world I come from is something like your hillbilly world. Um, it's a place of small valleys and, uh, and complicated family relationships and uh, um, networks of that sort. It's uh, one side of it's the ocean where, uh, where people go to settle in their old age or they go for their holidays. Uh, terrific beaches and all that sort of thing. There's a lot of people on that coast who uh, don't believe Australia exists uh, west of the, the Pacific Highway. You know, yeah. um, west of the Pacific Highway is where I come from. It starts to go up into hills and then into, into quite lonely mountain gorges, and uh, finally ends up in a in a plateau which we uh, quaintly call New England, uh, at, um, which was heavily settled by Scots. And uh, where I come from is a pocket of Scottish settlement where people uh, either married their first cousins or married Sco ma married uh, married uh, local Irish. Yeah. My great-grandparents were first cousins of each other. Um, it's um, a country in which leaves don't fall in, uh, fall in autumn. We have no season called fall. And um, uh, it's a country of small farms, which is fairly unusual in Australia because in most parts of Australia, farms have to be very big to survive. The old story is, you know, uh, you won a million dollars in the lottery, what are you going to do with it? Oh, I'll just go on farming till I use it up. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. so. I'll give you one example, yeah. which comes from tropical Australia. It's a new farm. Um, oh, you got to go. Thanks for all that. Lovely to meet you. Um, this farm's called Louvers. I gather the word exists here from you know those glass uh, slats that windows are made out of. Uh, there's a word weatherboarding, which is really in your language clapboarding. Louvers. <coughs> in the banana zone, in the Poinciana tropics, reality is stacked on hands-breadth shelving, open and shut. It is ruled across with lines as in a gleaming, gritty exercise book. The world is seen through a cranked or levered weatherboarding of explosive glass, angled floor to ceiling, horizons which meet to the dazzling outdoors into green edge couplets. In the louvered latitudes, children fly to, street, to sleep in triplanes, and cool nights are eerie with retracting flaps. Their houses stand aloft among bougainvillea, covered bridges that lead down a shining hall to, from love to mystery to breakfast, from babyhood to moving out day. And visitors shimmer up in columnar gauges to touch lives lived behind gauze in a lantern of inventory, slick vector geometries glossing the months of rain. There, nudity is dizzily cubist and directions have to include stage left, add an inch of breeze or enter a glistening tendril. Every building of jinked and slatted ledges is at times a squadron of inside out helicopters humming with, hot, with, with rotor fans. 
For drinkers under cyclonic pressure, such a house can be a bridge of sides. Groundlings scuffing by stop only for denouement. But everyone comes out on platforms of command to survey cloudy flame trees, the plane of streets, the future, only then descending to the level of affairs. And if these things are done in the green season, what to do in the crystalline drive? Well, below in the struts of laundry is the four-wheel drive vehicle in which to make an expedition to the bush, or as we now say, the land. The three quarters of our continent set aside for mystic poetry. <laughs> yeah, that's North Australia. That's uh, above the tropic, uh, monsoon country, uh, which has been described as a swamp for three months, uh, swamp for five months of the year in the desert for seven. <laughs> the seasons up there don't have the usual names. They're called uh, the pre-wet and the wet and the uh, green dry and the dusty dry. this violence but uh, so far thank God it hasn't issued in wars we've all just gone away to uh, to fight in other people's you know um, the challenge I think in art very often is between an art of conflict which is uh, dramatic art that sort of thing in which uh, positions are brought uh, into conflict with each other and resolved and an art in which um, peace is celebrated or, you know, life is celebrated and, uh, and commemorated. And I've always leaned towards what I call the Beotian side, which is commemoration and, uh, and celebration rather than uh, re resolution of conflict. You know. Damned if I know. It's what I do. <laughs> I don't know. Some people go in for conflict, but I think a lot of the time conflict is important in Australia. It's uh, somebody's cause, you know, from somewhere else which is uh, brought in. Typically, uh, David Maloof said once, the novelist at home, he said, uh, Australians, when they import a cause, never know where to stop with it. ...have um, imported stuff, which, which is often a way of avoiding facing uh, your life, you know. Uh, you can't... I once wrote in a poem, what will the, uh, the informally religious do to... In, uh, sorry, I'll read you the poem best thing to do with it. I'll get it wrong otherwise. Uh, it's called the Hypogeum. It, uh, my wife came home one day from the uh, supermarket and said it's marvellous. She said there's a, under the supermarket in the parking lot there's, there's a flood. It's about, it's about six inches deep but down there in the dark it looks infinitely deep. And uh, the cars are standing down there and Oh, that's that's too good to go and look at. I, I got to write that. I don't want to confuse myself with detail. So, uh, the hypogeum. Below the movable gardens of this shopping centre, down concrete ways to a level of rainwater, a black lake glimmering among piers, electric lighted, windless of no depth. Rare shafts of daylight waver at their base. As the water is shaken, the few cars parked down here seem to rock. In everything there strains that silent crash, that reverberation which persists in concrete. The cardboard carton Lorenzo's natural flavour Italian meatballs has bounded into a wet ruin. Dutch cleanser is propped with a high featureless wall. Self-raising flour is still floating, and supermarket trolleys hang their inverse halves, silver leaking from them. 
What will help the informally religious to endure peace? Surface water dripping into this underworld makes now a musical blip, now rings from nowhere. Young people descending the ramp pause at the water's brink, banging their voices. Peace can be a terrible thing, you know, uh, because the challenge is so much harder than uh, conflict and causes and war and all that. Uh, how, you, how the hell are you going to get past your 25th year? <coughs> and that's really one of the big challenges in the world, I think. Otherwise, we start indulging uh, what I call religion substitutes, um, causes. Does that make sense to you? We're not as individual a people as Americans are. Um, we're a more collective people. It's uh, individualism is punishable in Australia. Uh, there's an old legend that tall poppies are cut down. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, the oldest one I know of in which that's done was uh, the Bushman people in South Africa saying to a chap who had provided them with a whole cow, you know, and they cut it up and eaten it. They, they, they talked about how tough it was and how tasteless it was and how r rubbishy it was in general, and uh, he was quite hurt. And, it, and they said, somebody whispered to him afterwards, we never praise the giver of meat because he might become, uh, he might become uh, arrogant and, uh, and run mad and kill someone. I'd rule it out. I'd rule it out. Do you like that? The word intelligence here is not our word. Well, no, 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 it's not the word. The, the, the word intelligence is not the, an American word. Yeah. So, yeah. No, I'm, uh, I'm thinking, uh, I'm, uh, I'm thinking, well, what you're going to do is uh, something like Australian, well, equivalent Anaxagoras and possible like that. Yeah, but, um, that's the problem. That's one of the problems. Um, I suppose you get back to the Tukbil again. Um, such people have got to make um, considerable gestures of commonality and, uh, and establish themselves firmly in a community first. And what is, uh, what is the guy who's in the world? 
Um, that, that, oddly enough, will be respected more than uh, than ambition. Oh, you get a nose for it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <coughs> Nobody. I mean, there is a there is a, um, a a sort of Australian idea the uh, the Hatter, the Mad Hatter, uh, and the uh, the eccentric. Eccentrics have tended not would not or not all of them to have a certain amount of uh, of license. Uh, madness will give you a license where ambition won't. You know. well, Nobody course. likes uh, Rupert Murdoch, but. Uh, uh yeah, but suppose he goes into something like Kierkegaard. I mean, who's? Kierkegaard. Oh yeah, Kierkegaard. I think by the sheer authority of what they did, uh, uh, they would they would prevail. You see, what what only hap what happens is that you're tested, and if you're genuine, you're accepted. Uh, what is punished is there's a pretension to uh, privilege, uh, and a, and a real achievement that is not a aimed at privilege but is aimed at excellence is, is okay. But is that very different? Is that different? Is that different from any other regime that says you must be different? Whether it's communist or can't you have a totalitarian Yeah, they got police, they can stop you. Democracy? This mm -hmm. is folk stuff we're talking about. Yeah. The, in a totalitarian state, they'll stop you. We've got our totalitarians in Australia. They run a lot of the media, for one thing. But, um, um, but you are not, friends, okay, just bluntly, I mean, you're not considered idiosyncratic as a poet in Australia. Isn't that the opposite of what you're saying there, kind of? No, um, it's it's this that uh, the the idea of elite imported from abroad uh, is uh, is foreign, fundamentally foreign, and I challenge it. And, uh, and this is rejected by those who want that uh, that that kind of model of society. It was communal. It was communal. No, but can't get finally away from that tension, but uh, I think there is a, a way in which uh, we test claims and are very severe on those we don't believe and accept those we do. You know, It's very much a country in which, which is why I called this book Persistence in Folly. Uh, Mr. Blake says, the idiot, if you will persi only persist in his folly, will be wise, will become wise. Yeah? Uh, when you won't give an inch and uh, persist in your folly, you'll be accepted. Uh, you'll be accepted last of all by Australian elites, but you'll be accepted by the people uh, before them. I don't trust them. Uh, no, no, well, uh, well, because they so easily become aristocracies.
although art will repeat itself, it'll start from its beginnings again. It'll go right back to the Stone Age and start again, you know, with no trouble. Well, uh, certain laws and certain styles that have certain objects that yeah. are certain objects, but in a sense, in a sense, it always adds a new quality to yeah. We tend to have, our, our elites are still colonial and, uh, and tend to um, uh, and tend to criticize you on imported grounds. And therefore, um, if, you're, uh, if your work is genuine beyond that, you'll get in into trouble with them, but you won't get in trouble with the people. There's a stroke from not giving a damn as well. Everybody in his life successively doesn't give a damn and also cares, you know, in alternating moments. You know. There are Australians. I can conceive that there are Australians here for hours at a stretch don't give a damn about my paper. That's what uh, ordinary people go out into that land and uh, expand. Sometimes they they are the, what I call the taxi driver. You know that movie? Yeah. Uh, if they didn't have that to go to uh, to expand into, they might kill somebody in the street. Uh, it's a heat sink. It's a heat sink of uh, human uh, impulses sometimes. Uh, the empire was that. That's one of the meanings of empire. It's a place where you send the crazies. Uh, go out and conquer Afghanistan. Nobody conquers Afghanistan. But. Um, um, it's useful, I think, in your society to have some kind of a heat sink, you know, to take up these human impulses. Um, and damn, I can't remember the next thing I was going to say. <laughs> no, what, what I was driving at yeah. is, uh, well, indeed, what you are talking about and what you are presenting and representing yeah. is uh, essentially your own realm for exploitation in the spiritual idea. Mm. I don't think it's a new spiritual idea so much as working out a few spiritual ideas that come together and, uh, and, and have to be brought into harmony. Uh, but in addition to that, do you feel that there's a threat um, to the poet in that position that he has to be popular? Not because he wants to debase his language or make it ordinary or make it banal or something, but that um, I think it's a, it's a thing that happens in any society that's you know have been it's now being allowed to find itself, that there's this responsibility of trying to be very widely understood. Mm, that's right. And I think the best compliment you pay to people is to assume that they're as bright as yourself. I'm not that bright. I mean, I know a lot of words, but um, um, I figure that my readers are going to be able to uh, to understand anything I write. And it might take a while, you know, for them to get round to it, but... Uh, the basis of it is that common understanding. Yeah. You presume it, and you're created by presuming it. Yeah. Uh. Oh, now don't have me name names. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> <coughs> I get into trouble, I suppose, with um, a sort of 
sensibility that's come into Australia since the year 1968, to some extent. Uh, and the sensibility of causes and um, things that have a, an imported sort of Ameri Franco-American smell to them, and uh, which have now which have now come to their end. They've become uh, um, they've run out run out of energy, but uh, uh, haven't gone away. But uh, I figure that'll sort itself out in due course, you know. Um, I wouldn't. Don't think it needs to be particularised much beyond that. Uh, certain urgent political um, causes that um, I think are one-sided come up against the fact that uh, that I'm writing about uh, things that have two sides to them. You know, a dark side and a light side. The last, the, the worst news that um, that you can give to a, an urgent political reformer who believes he's believes in eternal death and there's only got a number of years before it comes, uh, is to tell them that, uh, nearly that, that uh, literally everything uh, has got a dark side to it, a shadow. And um, this seems to me to be an adult knowledge which the, uh, the West has been desperately trying to lie to itself about for about 20 years. Some things are, some things are pure, but fewer are I wish it was to me. Thanks, <laughs> <coughs> 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 Joseph.